welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm Nicole Sutton from the UTS Business School. I'm David Brown from the UTS Business School. And today we want to unpick what just happened with the election. So Dave, do you remember on what would have been, it was the Monday, the 20th of May, 2019, so the Monday after the election, I saw you around the corridors here at UTS. I must admit, uh, the conversation was, did you see what happened on the weekend? One of the things we love as researchers is when a result the empirics speak in a way you completely didn't anticipate. Absolutely. And for me, and I think for you too, when we got to the recent Australian federal election, it was, what? What just happened there? Well, all the theory was telling us it was going to go one way and then a completely different result popped out over the weekend. Yeah. But, I mean, beforehand, most of the opinion polls in the country were – and most pundits were suggesting that Australia was going to have a change in government – and yet, on the weekend, didn't happen. Well, even the bookies got it wrong. Mm-hmm. They had paid out. And then, oops, that was a mistake. And so what we would like to be able to do is to take this unexpected observation and go back to the theory and unpick why. What happened? What, why was there such a disconnect between the polls and the result? And what, what, what does it mean to actually have opinion polls? And what does it mean when we actually vote? So what makes this even more interesting for us is we had actually recorded this episode prior to the election result. Mm-hmm. So we'd interviewed people and we had a set of ideas and then, well, it was informed by what all the polls had told us, what everybody thought. And then with a completely unexpected result, we had to go back to the theory and see what happened and recut the episode. And it's not, though, that the people who we spoke to were wrong. In fact, they've got some really good ideas that in hindsight can help us understand what happened uh, in the Australian election. So, Dave, you spoke to Rebecca Huntley about this very issue about opinion polls and votes. What do you guys talk about? Well, she wrote this fascinating quarterly essay where she unpicked what the general public thinks, what polls tell us about what the general public thinks, and then the disconnect between that and the sort of policy that governments and oppositions actually provide. I understand the cynicism about political polling from um, the visible political polling that people say from the media um, because... There's also at the same time, because we've got the tools, the rise of all other kinds of surveys, right? Everything from people going on Twitter and, and saying how many people, who are you going to vote or not? And, you know, any other any other website could, or any other kind of media outlet could, could run an online poll. So people feel like there's this, all of this kind of polling happening and they wonder whether there's any science behind it. They wonder whether it's, it's right. On the type of polls we actually hear about, such as Ipsos, Fairfax, and the methods that they use. And so at the moment, polling is done by private companies who are often in, in combination with a, a media outlet. The wider media outlets want to bankroll polling. Well, they need their writers to write about something. Okay. <laughs> it's all about generating content. It's not necessarily a public um, good that they're involved in. Obviously, a lot of the political parties have private polling that they will never release. And in fact, it would be a surprise to people that almost no candidates will ever get access to that private polling. It's a very, very um, small group of people that see it. 
um, sometimes having seen some of that polling, sometimes it's in line with what the national polling tells you, but sometimes it gives you, often gives you a much more accurate picture, particularly because what they're monitoring is, is um, what's going to happen in marginal seats. So obviously a central concern is how do we know if those polls are accurate? We know because we test that polling based on the final results, which we can, which we a we can trust because the AEC generally know what they're <laughs> not they're corrupt doing. and generally know what they're doing. Australian Electoral Commission, and also because we've got this you know extraordinary tradition in Australia, which is I would almost argue unique in the world, which is that we complain about politicians, but we still vote. So in many ways, the two-party preferred polling or the polling that you see in the media is a very kind of top level, but it doesn't necessarily always give you a very, very clear idea about where Queensland's going to swing or, you know, who's going to get those many seats. That's why it's still exciting to see what happens on election night. It's like you kind of know what the ending of the movie is going to be, but you don't know who dies. And it's particularly interesting because some of those observations and insights that Rebecca was having, keep in mind that was pre-election, actually really came to bear once we found out the results of the election a little while ago. What it provided such a great example of is how the problem perhaps wasn't with the polling itself, which captured what people were thinking but it was a disconnect between what happened in the elections how the election system it worked or how elections themselves actually work and the disconnect perhaps between that and what the public will actually think. Hmm. The other thing of course and this is difficult is that elections are won by winning marginal seats. If the environment is not one or two on a marginal seat then it's not one or two on your agenda. Like you might think 80% of the electorate might say environment is important, but if you have to win five seats where they want to put a mine <laughs> to get jobs, then that's going to direct your campaign. And I think also part of it is that is politicians can sometimes have a very simplistic approach to how people see an issue. And they they oh, you know, it's just an issue now, but it'll go away in the future. So they often find it very hard to conceptualise that electorates can shift and issues can change, and they're often there's a there's a cost to them in so many ways, a financial cost but also a social cost, to be ahead of the, what they often call the mob. So one of the points you made there about uh, marginal electorates that are yeah. marginal. So I remember I read some research, which I, it was a long time since I read it, but I think it was conducted in the seventies, uh, and it was about winning elections by appealing to the um, median voter. Yeah. And so, and this is in a sense, you know, what you argue yeah. in your essay. And if you've got a compulsory voting system, then if it's sort of all votes are equal, you would expect those issues to emerge. Yeah. But what you've just explained is it's probably driven by marginal issues and marginal electorates. And so therefore those votes are weighted more. Yeah than the broad base. No, it's absolutely true. Although one of the things that's interesting to me, and I would certainly say this to the Conservatives, is that their focus on marginal seat campaigning, on, let's say, this idea that climate change isn't important to marginal seats, one of the things they've been so focused there that they've forgotten there's some prize seats they never have to worry about winning that are starting to move away from them. That's what happened in Wentworth. Wentworth was a combination of anger about what happened to Malcolm Turnbull and climate change being important there. So while they've been focused on the mar- these marginal issues and perhaps listening too much to Sky News After Dark, 
they are losing heartland seats. And it, it's a very similar experience that happened to the Labor Party after, you know, the Hawke-Keating years where they looked at the western suburbs of Sydney where it's like that's the working class, people who vote Labor no matter what. There's some people who were really losing out from the Labor Party's um, economic agenda, perhaps res- responding potentially to some of its cultural agenda, and suddenly they were fighting in the western suburbs of Sydney. It would never have been conceivable. Now, obviously, there were massive demographic changes in those seats. So there's a cost you pay by just focusing on the minority in the minority, is that you lose the larger picture and you lose, I think, a critical um, modern narrative about what your party should be about. So that really begs the question then, you know, how does our election system work and what are these underlying structures that our voting systems are built upon? And, you know, this is exactly the sort of stuff that we were talking about with Zhang Zhang about her research into voting systems. Well, I think different people may have different viewpoints. But for me, and trade as an economist, I think voting should be considered as an information aggregation tool. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if the government already knows right which alternative is preferred by most of people, then you don't really need to have voting, right? You can just command that alternative to be implemented. So voting is very important where actually the society as a whole or the government does not really know which alternative will benefit the society as a whole. That's why you need voting to elicit people's preference. So most conventional voting systems operate through majority voting, where the option with the most votes wins. Now, what is the problem with relying on a simple majority? Mm, Well, I think there are two major issues. The first issue is that majority voting, we can say it's one man, one vote, right? So you are able to then ask people whether you prefer A or B, so it's a yes or no binary choice, but you are not able to really know how strong people care about each issue. So it's often the typical case is that some people care more about the issue than the others. Some people may have much stronger view on certain issues than others, right? So mm-hmm. in this case, simple majority voting, when men win vote, is not able to elicit the intensity of the preference. So everyone's vote is equal, which sounds really nice. But the problem emerges if some people don't really care and other people do really care and how they're actually treated the same under a traditional voting system. It's actually often called the tyranny of the majority problem. Okay, yes. what is that? So the, the proposal that's supported by the majority will be selected, right? But often it is at, at the expense of the minority. Mm-hmm. And the minority people do not get any compensation from losing the election, for example. And if you think about some cases, this can be really brutal. And she uses this example of a rezoning policy change where because of the change, perhaps you're not able to send your kids to a good local public school. Or in another example, the value of your house drops uh, dramatically. So there are situations where in a policy sense, where people in the entire society all have an equal vote of a matter, but not everybody is affected equally by the outcome. And therefore, those intensity of preferences aren't being captured by the system. I think it's really untenable that people who suffer do not get any compensation. So when economists look at different voting systems, they're trying to evaluate or assess their effectiveness. That's what they look for, right? 
So the important measure that economists take is the efficiency, right?、Mm. So how efficient the mechanism or the voting institution is, and you can define efficiency by thinking about the social welfare, right? So an efficient mechanism should maximize the social benefit, taking into account all the costs and benefits externally or internally. But what does she mean by efficient in the context of voting? Mm. So this this took me a little bit of time to get my head around. But when economists are looking at the efficiency of a voting system, they're trying to understand the total welfare produced by a system. So what they're looking at is in, when we often when we vote, we think about the individual welfare, like what's in it for me, what's in it for you,、uh, and how much we care about it. But when economists are looking at the voting system, they're going to look at on the one hand what say those majority people, how much do they want that particular outcome in total, and then they'll look at the people that are in the minority position and how much they want the alternative, and they'll compare the two. And so an efficient voting system. Will mean that it selects the option that provides the largest total welfare、uh, for the group. So would this be like, just say, you, me, Jason, we are going to go out for lunch,、mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we go, let's vote. Where would you like to go? Sure. Now, Jason and I eat probably just about everything. And really don't care.、Mm-hmm. You, on the other hand, are、oh, yeah. a vegan. Yes, I'm a vegan. And so if we go. Let's go to Brazilian barbecue and eat meat, or you know we don't really care where we eat. You, on the other hand, probably have much stronger preferences about、yeah. where you would want to eat. Yeah, I'm strongly against going to Brazilian barbecue. Not that there's anything wrong with it for other people, but for myself, going to Brazilian barbecue is going to be quite a negative.、Um, uh, I guess in economist land, I'm going to get a negative return from that. So I, so I myself, like, feel very strongly that we should not go. Uh, but if you two both want to go, but perhaps not as much, if we if we put it to a vote, you guys, as two of you, one of me, like you'll win, even though I'm the one that is going to like bear the cost. You're listening to Think Business Futures. To download this show, head to two ser dot com or your favourite podcasting app and look for Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're talking about voting systems, their problems, and possible alternatives. So, given the problems with conventional voting, what have economists like Jingjing proposed? So, economists have actually come up with quite a few different alternatives for this problem. Besides my paper, there is、um, some voting system which is called storable votes. So, the idea is that you may actually have. A couple of issues that you want to vote on, right? Then we can give you a budget of votes. For example, if you care about I don't know three issues, then we give you ten votes, and then you can decide how many votes to be casted on each issue. So it's like you have a budget of votes, and you can allocate what you actually care about. And it's not just you get to allocate out your votes in one, say, voting season. If there's nothing that you're really interested in, you can actually store up your votes and save them for later, for when you do have a strong preference for an outcome. That's really interesting. So I can stockpile my votes and then wait for a particular issue that I feel strongly about. So you mentioned in Jingjing's paper that when she proposed an alternative solution. What was it that she proposed?、Hmm. So she recently wrote a paper, and it's got a really cool title. It's called "One Man, One Bid," where she proposed something called a quadratic bidding system. The idea is 
that people can actually、um, submit a bid to express the intensity of their preference. Right. So in the bidding system, then everyone can buy number of votes via bidding. But bidding is costly, right? So the important feature that make our mechanism work is that the cost has to be quadratic、mm-hmm. in the number of votes you buy. This bit's really important because the cost of buying additional votes becomes costly. It's it's an exponential cost. So if you want to buy one, you pay one dollar. If you want to buy three votes, it's going to cost you nine dollars. So the cost of each additional vote is going to go up exponentially. And because of that, rich people. If they want to buy election, for example, they have to pay a lot of money, right? Because the cost of of buying votes grows so fast. That's why we don't think、um, that's possible. So this is first part, and the second part is also important because it deals with the tyranny of the majority problem. So now everyone has paid. The money to buy the number of votes they prefer, and then we collect all the payments, and then we redistribute the payment in the following way. So every voter will get the average payment of other vote voters. So everybody gets a rebate regardless of the outcome. Right. So everyone gets a rebate, which is based off the average payments based on the bids. But for some people, they won't actually get that rebate because they've bid for votes, and so on the net balance, they end up kind of paying much more. If you don't bid, you get the rebate. Yeah. Okay.、Yes. So there's an incentive to actually just sit back on the fence, you know. If you don't really care. If you don't really care,、yeah. just sit back on the fence, and you'll get a nice rebate. Yes. Aside from the extra dollars in your pocket from the rebate, what are some other unexpected advantages of Jingjing's bidding system? Well, in theory, it has very good properties. So I mentioned that we care about efficiency. So this mechanism has been proved to be a hundred percent efficient. Hundred percent efficient in terms of replicating people's actual preferences and maximize the total social welfare. Okay, so in theory, it's actually going to maximize everybody's welfare. And then it is also individually rational, which means if you are a rational person, then you understand the the incentives, then you will make the right decision to participate in the mechanism. So Rebecca was talking about the electoral system in Australia being pretty special because voting is mandatory. So. In a sense, is a built-in incentive system, but in Jingjing's model, it would work in countries that don't have mandatory voting by providing a rational financial incentive. Hmm. And as an accountant, you're going to love the other feature, and then it's budget balanced. Now that is speaking my language. Budget balance, yeah. Essentially, all the money that sits within the system then gets redistributed back to the people participating in the system, i.e., all the members of the electorate. So to get this clear, the bidding system, in theory, is going to be efficient, and it's going to encourage people to be rational. And the third thing, it's going to be balanced. So at this stage, you might be wondering whether or not Jingjing actually tested this system, or if it was just purely theoretical, and she did. She went into the lab, and she tested the bidding system compared to a traditional voting system using mock elections with study participants. And in fact, they went through about twenty different times. And then after they went through twenty different times, she actually asked participants which system they preferred. So, which one did they choose? Do you want to take a guess? I have absolutely no idea. Maybe 
the new one? 90% of the electorates actually preferred our bidding mechanism. 90% prefer the bidding. 90%, yeah. And we really, we, I mean, we are very happy to see it. And also, we try to ask people to explain of their endogenous choice of the institution, right? Why do you prefer women when bid over women when vote? So we ask them to write um, explanations during the experiment, right after their decision. What did they say? Yeah, often people actually mention that um, with women when vote, they feel it's more like fate decides the outcome. They don't feel that they have uh, control over their fate, right? But with bidding mechanism, because they can buy votes, so they feel they are able to influence the outcome more than the women when vote system. Now, of course, they also said they like the financial incentives of the rebate, which I guess is no surprise. Well, completely understand that. So this worked in theory and in the lab, but what does it look like in practice? I mean, if you created a voting system in which people could actually buy votes, that sounds like it could start to get a little tricky, don't you think? Mm, yeah, I have to be honest. Before I interviewed Jingjing, I fielded this idea with my friends, you know, over dinner parties and so on. And for most Sorry, people... Sorry, I just have to interject there. Like, this is what you talk about at dinner parties? Oh, my goodness. All my friends have been subjected to hearing about alternate voting systems for the last few months. I think they're over it. Maybe that's one person, one wine. (laughs) Yeah, well, anyway, at dinner, when I suggest to people that uh, I'm talking to an economist about a system where people can buy votes, and in theory and in practice, this is actually meant to be more efficient, for them, they recoil against the idea that you could potentially be involving payments in an election system. I guess there's a fear out there that you have some extremists that could come along and buy an election. Well, I guess look what happened without Clive Palmer in the election. That's one of the arguments around that, right? Well, funny you should mention that. So I actually put this to Jing Jing about the criticisms about people buying votes in elections. Right. I, I've heard of those objections many times now. I think there are several things that we'd like to respond to this. The first is that um, if you look at the current system, rich people are buying election via excessive campaign contributions. And those money are most often just wasteful activities, right? Like Mm -hmm. negative ads towards the opponents, things like that. As economists, we acknowledge the problem, but we take good use of it. At least we collect the money and the money will be redistributed to people who suffer from the outcome. The second thing is that it's more like our methodology, right? Or, or for me, at least, because I think myself as an engineer in economics. What I mean is that I think a successful design is not the case of the achievement for perfection, but rather it should be the case that is to achieve the minimization and the accommodation of imperfection, right? So there are those problems. We are aware of those problems. So by having our mechanism in reality, it does not mean that we rule out other possible laws, right? You can have laws to set up to reduce the possible vote vote buying problem. 
Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting point that she's making, that all these adaptations, like the adaptations we know that happened with the Australian electoral system, say, 100 years ago, with the introduction of mandatory voting or the vote for women, all of these things were relatively novel, if not abhorrent at the time, and designed to deal with specific flaws that people saw at the time. So this is one adaptation to deal with one specific problem. I guess it's pretty clear that despite the development of voting systems, there are significant structural challenges. So it's good that we've got really smart economists who know about markets and behaviour actually working on this sort of problem, because presumably beyond the context we've been talking about, which is elections, there are all sorts of other contexts in which you could apply this sort of system. So Mm -hmm. I was thinking about an earlier discussion around development in your local area or community choices over uh, all sorts of different social issues, you could apply this kind of system in that context and drive much better outcomes for the community as a whole and for individuals within it. What Mm. do you think? Yeah, even within organisations, this could provide some sort of blueprint for how in group situations that group might make a decision. So in organisations you have committees and things are put down to a vote and sometimes they have consensus voting where everyone has to agree but a lot of the time we have this majority win scenario and the theory that's in Jingjing's research would point to some of the problems if you rely on that. So I can see lots of different circumstances where you'd want to have intensity of preferences more reflected in your voting system. That brings us to the close of this episode of Think Business Futures. Think Business Futures is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Until next time.